Hey guys, it's Ayo here. So this week's episode of Mind Theater is a special one in that it's a video essay, but it's also my senior project. So I've been working on it for the past few months and a lot for the past uh, couple of weeks. And it's kind of the most expansive thing I've ever done in terms of Mind Theater or, or really any creative project. Uh, so I'm really proud of this one and I hope you guys enjoy. And uh, as always, it'll be the first link in the show notes. Uh, you really do need the visuals to fully appreciate this one. So... Uh, Uh, So yeah, hope you guys enjoy. Thanks. The word auteur gets thrown around a lot when it comes to directors, and there's a few names that come to mind. The Quentin Tarantinos, the Martin Scorsese's, the Paul Thomas Andersons. These filmmakers, these artists, these authors, as the name auteur suggests, hold a certain level of power and influence over nearly every aspect of their completed film. From the stylistic approach they take to direction, to the costume and set design of the lived-in world, to the actors who get casted in their roles, to the beating heart of the script blueprint that's as malleable and changing as the vision of the director is. In the same way we conceptualize the author of a book as in complete control of their story, insofar as publishers or editors might curb that level of enthusiasm, the auteur of a film is one that maintains a stranglehold on the narrative and has a perceived relationship to the film that's stronger than any other single individual involved in the film's making. The film exists to be understood as a product of their vision. Now, whether this distinction is fair to the other screenwriters who they may have worked with, or the actors that brought the dynamic characters to life, or the production company that funded the film in the first place is neither here nor there. But one thing's for certain is that when you go to see a Christopher Nolan flick, for example, you weren't going to see it for the key grip or the gaffer or the best boy. You're going to see it for... Simply makes you... Stranger. In short, auteur is kind of a loaded word. It points to an all-consuming authority that comments on our inability to see a finished product as the sum of its parts. Instead, we tend to see the broad strokes, the big faces, the loudest voice in the room. But what about Fincher? What about him? You might know him from cult classics like Fight Club, from brooding psychological thrillers like Gone Girl or Zodiac, from generational-defining cultural objects like The Social Network. But more than the actual content of his films, you know him for his style. The same effort other blockbuster directors put into an explosion or a chase sequence or a humorous line of dialogue, looking at UMCU, Fincher infuses his genius into a simple pan, a tracking shot, or dolly, an extreme close-up that can't help but exude with style. It's incredibly cinematic. All of this emphasis on style might beg the question, can one adequately use the word auteur to describe Fincher, a man who doesn't write his scripts, seemingly gets tacked onto films during the middle of the production cycle, and is often more intrigued in adaptation than in bringing to life the original concepts and stories that his contemporaries seem content to pluck from their mind's eye? Who cares? He's so damn good. And he's had a body of nearly three decades of work that showcase in so many ways how he's evolved outside of the word. As he's aged, his style has grown and changed like fine wine, remaining focused and poised in producing not just films, but cultural-defining touchstones, with an approach to visual storytelling that is unmistakably Fincher, an approach that begins with the 90s and a little disappointment called Alien 3. Well, actually, it starts a little earlier than that. Fincher cut his teeth on music videos and commercials, after all. One of his earliest ventures was a production company called Propaganda Films, which he co-founded with producers Steve Golan, Nigel Dick, 
Dominic Cena and uh, Mr. S. And it's this production company specializing in commercials and music videos that would attract the collective talent of other directors as well, from the likes of Michael Bay to Spike Jones to Zack Snyder and more, serving as a launching off point for aspiring directors and a place to hone their skills before moving into feature films. During this time there, Fincher curated quite the resume directing TV commercials for companies including Levi's, Nike, Pepsi, and Coca-Cola, though he loathed doing them. It wasn't until 1984 that he began to foray into music video direction, with plenty of well-known stars benefiting from his early but professional eye for direction. Michael Jackson's Who Is It? Aerosmith's Janie Got a Gun, Billy Idol's Cradle of Love, Madonna's Express Yourself, Oh Father, Vogue, and Bad Girl. Once again, quite an impressive resume. It wasn't until the 90s, however, that Fincher would have his breakthrough into feature film. They think we're... we're crud. And they don't give a fuck about one friend of yours that's... that's died. Not one. With Alien 3, Fincher would essentially make his first foray into the big leagues, brought on to replace Vincent Ward in the Sigourney Weaver-starred sci-fi film that was ultimately mediocre. By many accounts, it was a middling film with mixed perception, but not all at the fault of Fincher, though. Like many bloated franchise films that exist within the Hollywood pipeline, it was a film hampered by studio intervention and abandoned scripts. In an interview with The Guardian in 2009, Fincher stated that no one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. A resounding response from the now-heralded director. It's not every day that bad movies actually aid in getting your name out there, but I think what production and distribution companies like Arnold Coulson and New Line Cinema saw in between the sci-fi nihilism and bad production of Alien 3 was a director that simply needed the right script to flourish. Fincher had other thoughts, though, at least initially after the disappointment that was Alien, leaving the movie scene to do more music videos before returning after reading Andrew Kevin Walker's original screenplay for a neo-noir psychological crime thriller film called Seven, another project originally meant for a different director, in this case Jeremiah Chekich. One of the aspects of the film he fought hard for was keeping the original ending, one that had been revised during Jeremiah's time within the direction pipeline. New Line Cinema capitulated to Fincher's demands, and the rest is history. I think what we see in Seven is Fincher's first true appeal to style, the beginning to what we now see as his technical, almost mechanical approach to filmmaking, defined by motivated camera movement, his perfectionist multi-take nature, and an appeal to what we so often find thrilling. I think where sci-fi can be a tricky genre to get right, with writers and directors often finding themselves under the thumb of world-building, and suspense of disbelief, the thriller proved itself to be the most profound and natural vessel for Fincher's approach to cinema. First, there's his motivated camera movement. Within seconds of watching a David Fincher-directed film, you can almost immediately tell it. Why is that? To me, it's because the camera moves like another actor on set. It has its own agency, its own biases. Biases that are intently concerned with mirroring character actions and movements from the subtle bob of the head that would otherwise be in or out of frame, to a long tracking shot that moves with the same confidence as the actors within the scene, every step is always in sync, in harmonious rhythm. In other words, perfect. His perfectionist nature has been noted before. His directorial prowess often involves cycling through take after take after take after take. It's interesting to note how much Fincher hates this moniker of perfectionism, however. 
I think that perfectionism is is a term that's um, thrown thrown about m mostly by people who are lazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm so imperfect. Sorry, I'm funny. I mean, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, we're not trying to do something perfect. You know, perfect is a is is the commercial. You know, perfect is um, you, you're looking for stuff to be imperfect in exactly the right way. So, mm -hmm. so what's important is to be able to articulate what perfect would be and then avoid it at all costs. While Seven almost single-handedly birthed his style, The Game and Fight Club, his other two films in the 90s, worked to perfect it. I think what the latter half of Fincher's work in the 90s showed was just how particularly great Fincher was at choosing narratives to match his directorial style. Fincher, above being even a director at times, is a behaviorist in his films, intently concerned with depicting characters who are compelled to act in animalistic ways that hint to a complex psychology that exists beneath the surface. His stories are filled with characters that are mentally unhinged or have their reality breaking at the seams. They're stories that focus on character actions but also character reactions within the context of Fincher's approach to framing his worlds around them. And like many great directors, he accomplishes this framing through his camera work. What the narrator in Fight Club and Nicholas Van Orton in the game have in common is their relationship to the world. Both are put through the ringer of dissecting and coming to grips with the superficiality inherent to both their worlds, and both are uneasy at the prospect of having to unearth the truth to their realities, while being studied and examined by the worlds they are concerned with breaking from. Existing behind a Fincher camera can feel a lot like being underneath a microscope at times, closed off from the rest of the world, your actions and behaviors to be dissected and examined. It's a camera that can be intimidating, but also truth-seeking. Fincher's 2000s movies represent a weird era of experimentation for me, not in terms of style, which at this point was wholly solidified, but in terms of his marriage between narrative and visual. Panic Room, Zodiac, and Curious Case all do it differently. A one-room thriller, a sprawling serial killer biography, and a weird-ass movie about whatever's going God on with Brad Pitt. He's seven. <laughs> In Panic Room, we gain perspective on how Fincher's style works within a limited space. Most of the movie's runtime spent in a single room in a single house, and it's within that room that Jodie Foster and the young Kristen Stewart burst with thrilling intrigue, aided by a Fincher camera able to capture their fear, their peril, and their love. In Zodiac, the most telling aspect of Fincher's filmmaking is his ability to work well with ensemble casts. The Downey Juniors, Jake Gyllenhaal's, and the Mark Ruffalo's fade into the background of their characters. As a quick aside, I think Fincher's work in ensembles is an underrated part of his genius. You can walk a thin line when it comes to enlisting the help of A-list actors to play specific characters. While recognizable faces put butts in the seats, there can be a tendency to lose the character to the point where you only see the actor. Think Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage, and all of Dwayne The Rock Johnson's cinematic appearances. Back to Zodiac, the reason I love his approach to crafting ensembles in this case is because the story is more concerned with the nuances of its characters within the procedural thriller than it is with the grisly details of the serial murders. We get the mood of the 70s, but also its swagger. Critic Owen Gleiberman awarded the film an A grade, hailing the film as a procedural thriller for the information age that spins your head in a new way, luring you into a vortex and then deeper still. 
In the curious case of Benjamin Button, we begin to see Fincher's taste for fantasy and romance, his ability to capture the weird, the irreverent, the nonsensical at times. And while this movie may not be considered highly within the pantheon that is Fincher, I think it serves as an important transitional piece that showed just how far his directorial prowess was willing to go. In many ways, the 2000s as a whole served to cement Fincher not just as a stylistic artist, but a character-driven one. And it's his technical approach to directing that helped foster so many of these interesting character dynamics, drawn from a deep well of A-list actors and frequent collaborators to aid him. Every year saw Fincher mastering his directorial style, collaborating with actors who would go on to give powerful performances, and choosing stranger and stranger narratives to apply his dramatic vision towards, still without committing a single word to the screenplay page, still content to sit behind the camera. But as sharp as Fincher's vision and eye were, you couldn't help but feel that the emotional outcome of his films were so often heavily dictated by the script they were married to. Begging the question, what happens when genius direction meets world-class screenwriting? Well, in effect, you get the social network. Mark! He's wired in. Sorry? He's wired in. Is he? Yes. How about now? You still wired in? The Social Network is a landmark film, and one of my favorites from Venture. And I think it's because it showcased how biopic can be truly thrilling, illuminating, and dangerous especially when it comes to making our evil billionaire protagonists seem really cool. Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher, a match made in heaven. What you find in Sorkin's scripts and Sorkin dialogue is its intense sense of rhythm and timing. It's fast-paced and quick. It often doesn't give you room to breathe, and when it does, it's jarring and powerful. And there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated. Yes. There is. Well, you do. That was cryptic, so you do speak in code. I didn't mean to be cryptic. Sorkin himself says that when writing his dialogue, what the words sound like is as important to him as what the words mean. Dialogue for Sorkin exists as musical. He's able to capture the jarring musicality of our social interactions, overlapping dialogue that infuses scenes with intense kinetic energy, characters on different trains of thought who invite hectic and real tension into his scenes. But regardless of how hectic and chaotic the scenes get, Sorkin is always in control, always specific and exacting, always precise in his approach to depicting character, a stylistic understanding that mirrors Fincher's approach to directing. They are both perfectionists, to use the word that Fincher hates so much. Fincher uses framing and juxtaposition to create visual interest. Sorkin uses speed of delivery and overlapping voices to create auditorial interest. In many ways, he's the perfect writer for Fincher's direction. And it's through marriages like this one that it starts to become prevalent why Fincher prefers collaboration over the more singular-focused, singular-vision lens of his contemporaries. I think what Fincher's most recent works have shown is that there's beauty in being a director removed from their work. His most recent two thrillers, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl, were both adapted from novels, a practice Fincher doesn't shy away from in regards to selecting projects he wants to direct. But they're another level of written work being removed from the director. Both of these scripts existed within the minds of producers or production assistants that ran through the pipeline to screenwriters and that had Fincher eventually attached to the project. This removes the mystique that directors often have in regards to their work. There's a loftiness that we subscribe them to, a high pedestal we often put them on. They are completely and utterly in charge. Often the single name we uttered when we think about a movie is the director, and with that we apply the assumption that the movie is theirs. 
To learn that Fincher serves essentially as an equal cog in the production machine adds a touch of humanity to his pieces that are otherwise cold, dark, dangerous, and thrilling. A level of humanity that Fincher is truly capable of. His most recent work, Mank, underscores this. The screenplay was written by his late father, Jack, who wrote it after retiring, as he wanted to research behind the scenes of a classic movie he loved and adored, the heralded Citizen Kane. Fincher originally conceptualized this movie as his follow-up to the game, but his insistence on shooting in black and white in order to honor his father's wishes led to the film being shelved for over 20 years, before Netflix finally took a chance. The end result was a film that encompasses the many aspects of Fincher's filmmaking and the culmination of his years of directing. The star-studded cast that sinks into their performances, the intimate camera that is profoundly concerned with character behavior and emotion, the collaboration of his direction with writing that speaks to him, in this case on a deeper emotional level than even us as audience members are privy to. Through three decades of Fincher, he did more than just make thrilling movies, he transformed our definition of thriller itself, and through that process crafted a visual language that aspiring directors and artists will study for decades to come. So, is he an auteur? I don't know. You tell me. Mind Theater is a solo effort producer written by me, Ao Ekingbade. For updates on the show, as well as my other content, follow Mind Theater Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you want to show monetary support, the Ko-fi link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.